Thank you, Benjamin. Good morning. I was getting concerned that if the rapture happened about five minutes ago, we would have gone first, for the dead in Christ will rise first. So I was happy to see some of you awake from your slumber and emote with a little bit more than just go tell it on the mountain. Like, some of you can relax, loosen up. The Bible does really teach this, that you worship God not just with your cerebral cortex. You use your entire body. And don't tell me that you're uncomfortable with that because you do that when you watch athletics and other things. So it's just something that you learn to do, to praise the Lord. You don't have to go crazy and jump over the chairs and all, but God's okay with that. He doesn't, doesn't get disturbed. But maybe you feel like, ah, I don't feel like it. No, that maybe is another thing to think about, like, oh, I'm sorry, it's about you, okay? So this morning I want to welcome all of those of you who are visiting with us, if this is your first time here. Uh, that was a great, great idea to have people clapping during the offering. They're like, oh, I was going to give, but hey, man, you know, I was, all of a sudden when the plate came, boy, you were just clapping away. Oh, sorry, I didn't, didn't get a chance. Seriously, we're not, we're not trying to get your money. A lot of people think churches are just out to get your money. We're not here to get your money. In fact, if you don't know Christ, your money's meaningless to God. God wants to give you a gift. The Bible says a gift of God is everlasting life. But if you are a believer, thank God many of you are generously giving to advance the gospel. And I want to encourage you to do that, but not out of guilt, but out of gratitude to Christ. This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, a very familiar Christmas story, one that we've looked at many times in the past. And it's fun because when you listen to a song that you really like, you don't turn it off because you've heard it before. You pick up nuances, you kind of think it through, you rehearse it, you kind of belt out your favorite line. And in the same way, this, this story to many of you is very familiar, but today I want us to just, I hate this phrase, but unpack some of the truths that are, that are in here. But before we do that, I do want to welcome a friend of mine. He came to, to the service this morning. I think he probably traveled farther than you did because he came from Africa. So I'm going to ask in just a moment him to stand. He graduated uh, this weekend from Cairn University with his master's degree in education, and he is an educator over in Africa with a significant ministry. So I want to welcome Shagoon and his wife. If you'll stand, let's give praise to the Lord. If you want to get blessed, get near him and hang around him. I had a chance to teach him over in Kandern, Germany a couple summers ago. and Delighted to have you. Well, we're, we're going to read today verses 1 through 14 of Luke chapter 2. And so I'd like to invite us to do something a little bit different. We don't have to do this, but out of reverence for the word of God, it's fun sometimes to stand and read it together. So would you join me as we stand together and read Luke chapter 2? If you need a Bible, our ushers are here. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep this Bible. We'd really like you to have a Bible, take it home, start reading it during the week. And those of you that have a Bible, wipe the dust off and begin to read it as well. Let's read together. Will you join me? Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let's pray while you're standing. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. It is alive and powerful, and it is something that we are extremely grateful for. Though many neglect it, though many don't know it, those of us who have been given the privilege of reading it, we thank you for giving this revelation to us. As we contemplate the birth of Christ this morning, may the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and encourage us to worship and love Jesus. Change us, Father, as we consider the glory of Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. This morning I want to invite you to consider, first of all, the involvement of angels as they had this opportunity to bring this good news. They, they show up and they say, hey, listen, I've got some good news. Now, I want you to think about how that's sort of universally a neat thing to do. Don't we all like to be the bearer of good news? I mean, men, it's pretty exciting when you get a Christmas bonus or a raise and, and, and you look forward to coming home and telling your wife, honey, I've got good news. <clears throat> For some of you, you know, your child had some accomplishment for which, oh, he took his first steps today. Mom wants to tell the good news. Maybe it's a, a report you got back from the doctor. The tumor has shrunk. I want, I want to tell somebody the good news. But I want you to consider the angels for a moment. I, I read a sermon this week by Charles Spurgeon called The First Christmas Carol, and he brought out something interesting. He said, you know, we shouldn't worship angels, but we really should have some fond affection, even love them, to think that one day they'll worship beside us up in heaven. But he said, you know, when people do things for you, it's just natural to have a sense of gratitude, and it's not blasphemy to be grateful for the ministry of angels. Much like when somebody does you a favor, you don't say, hey, I'd like to thank you, but ultimately God did it, so I'm not going to thank you. So we're not going to praise the angels, but I want you to stop and think about these angels and their involvement in the gospel story. Because the Bible tells us that before the world was created, God created an innumerable company of angels. They're not naked-butted babies. They're not silly little cherubs. They're these glorious beings that have ranks and authority and positions. And some of them are, are so awesome in power that even the archangel Michael didn't speak against Satan himself because of his, his power. And so as we think about the angels and their purpose, the Bible says when God created the heavens and the earth. The sons of God sang for joy. The, the morning stars, the angels worshiped God. So they were in the, the habit of doing this.
But there were certain times in history where God gave them the opportunity to join in the, the, this chorus of praise and, and acclamations to God. And particularly, I want us to focus to begin this sermon on this phrase, glory to God in the highest. Now, let's take consider that this kind of was a layered effect because it started with one angel. And, and that one angel terrified the shepherds. But when the heavens opened up and an entire army of angels, a heavenly host, this makes the, the publisher's clearinghouse crowd that shows up in your door pale in comparison when suddenly the heavens open and this glorious band of angels open up and they go, glory to God in the highest. I want you to stop and just pause and think about what they just said. Glory to God in the highest. This morning as we contemplate the story of Christmas, I want to begin by reminding you that the Christmas story is good news. The Bible says, I bring you good news. See that in verse 10? But ultimately, the reason it's good news is not because of how it benefits us, but the primary reason why the gospel of Christmas is good news is because it brings glory to God. If you'll pardon this slang expression, this is how God rolls. Everything God does is ultimately for his glory. It's for his purpose. It's for his fame. It's to display his power and his wisdom and his love and his wrath and his holiness and his sovereignty. Now, if, if God was a human, that would seem pretty prideful. But there's no one greater than God. And, and it's ultimately not only a display of his glory, but it benefits us. But I want you to stop and think, why didn't the angels just say, glory to God? Yeah, man, glory to God. It's Christmas. But they said, glory to God in the highest. Now, there's a number of ways we could think about that. Does it just mean that there's a bunch of other gods, but hey, we want to, this one's going to go all the way up to the top? Probably not. Spurgeon suggested in his sermon, as he thought about this phrase in the highest, that this ranking of angels, because the Bible teaches that not all angels are equal. There's an archangel, and there's principalities and powers, and there's cherubim and seraphim, that, that, that this news spread among the angels. Hey, take this one all the way up to the top. Glory to God in the highest as they passed on this message of God coming down to earth that, that when it reached those four mighty creatures that we read about in Revelation chapter 4, covered with eyes and, and wings who are singing day and night, holy, 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 that when, when the message of Christmas reached them, they're like, glory to God in the highest. The highest angels are praising him. But I, I want to I think that perhaps... There's another way we could look at this, and that is that the gospel, the good news of Christmas, is the ultimate display of God's glory on planet Earth. That God has done many things for his glory. When he slung the stars into space, when he parted the Red Sea, when he sent the plagues upon the Egyptians, there's lots of cool things that God has done that brought him glory, and people and angels worshiped him. But ultimately, it's in the fullness of time when Christ got up off the throne and he stepped across the stars and he came down how silently to be born of the Virgin Mary. That there in itself, the, the, the incarnation of Christ is the greatest display of glory. This becomes the center theme of eternal praise and worship. This is why God unfolded this drama on planet Earth. That one day his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come down as a little lamb to be born and crucified for our sins to be raised and seated in heaven as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this morning, as we, we think about Christmas, I want you to think about 
how much Christmas is all about God's glory. It's all about his fame and his praise and, and how we ought to worship him. But as we unpack this, this passage and we think about some things, I want to suggest that this passage is rich with reasons why Christmas and the good news of Christ brings glory to God. The first one is, I want you to stop and think about how it astounds the angels. Think about how the Christmas story astounds the angels. There was no lack of emotion here. They weren't just like, hey, um, God wanted me to tell you glory to God in the highest. The, the angels were astounded by Christmas. There's a real mystery in the scriptures as to why and how God has provided salvation to people and not angels. Ever think about this? When God created this myriad of beings, heavenly angels, all of them in an unconfirmed state of holiness, he knew and purposed that one of those beings, Satan, would rebel against him. He didn't cause Satan to sin, but he planned that through the voluntary choice of Satan, he allowed and, and, and ordained that there would be this rebellion among the angels. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that the dragon swept away a third of the stars of heaven. And so many have suggested that of all these beautiful angels that Satan in his rebellion took with him a third of the angels who came down to wreak havoc in God's creation. And God has destined them for destruction. Matthew 25, 41 says, God has prepared hell for Satan and his angels. But I want you to, 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 to contemplate for a moment that that those angels who have affections, who have feelings, display no sense of jealousy that God provided no help for the angels. In fact, the Bible actually says in Hebrews chapter 2, God has provided no help, no assistance, no redemption, no possibility of salvation for any of the angels. And I could imagine that from a human standpoint, some of those angels who who were spared or who chose not to rebel, could have had emotions like, hey, well, wait a minute. Those were my friends. Why isn't God providing salvation to them? But as you, as you read the Bible, you begin to realize that angels, they're not these, these omniscient beings that understand everything. They're spectators just like we are. And once in a while, the pages of Scripture peel back and we see them watching us. And that's really something interesting to think about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul actually said this. He said, as you folks gather together in your local churches, there's certain things that you need to do because of the presence of the angels. That while some of you, your husband might have said, sit here by me, angel, you're not really the angels. There really are angels observing Christians as they gather. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, you mighty angels who obey the voice of his word. Think about angels as they look down on this planet of creatures created in the image of God, created and designed to glorify and give thanks to him, to worship and serve him day and night. And as they watch people in their chaotic rebellion, doing it their way. No wonder Jesus said, Pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I want to suggest that the angels were marveling at this mystery of Christmas. Why would Jesus get up off his throne and come down to earth? They're engaged, folks. They get excited. Jesus said, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I picture them talking among themselves and, 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 and marveling at some of the mysteries. 
I, I see them hanging over the clouds looking down. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this. He says, God has sent the Holy Ghost from heaven to proclaim salvation to you, things into which angels long to look. And so Christmas brings glory to God, first of all, because it astounded the angels. No wonder the songwriter said, ye who sang creation's story, loud proclaim Messiah's birth. These angels from the realms of glory. But there's another way that, that Christmas glorifies God in the highest. Not only that it astounds the angels, but because it centers on Christ. There's this, there's this fulcrum, there's this vortex, there's this, there's this primary purpose, and it's only singular. It's Jesus Christ himself. Christmas is all about Jesus. And so when the, when, when the angel says, we bring you good news, the reason it's good news is because it's all about Jesus. It's all about a Savior who has been born, who is Christ the Lord. You see, God's design from eternity past into eternity future is to bring praise and worship and glory and focus on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, it's really sad when you think about it because there's some six or seven billion people prancing around on this planet and how few of them have learned to bow down to the Lord Jesus and worship him. He's not one among money. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And one day all of the, all of the universe, men and women, boys and girls who have ever lived, angels fallen and angels redeemed or, or angels confirmed in their holiness. The scriptures say one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas brings glory to God because it focuses on our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But another reason why it, it glorifies God is because it benefits us. I mean, look what it says. It says, behold, I bring you, you people, good news of great joy. And don't limit it to you people. It will be for all the people. There has been born for you. See, Christmas was, was, was a display of God's love to benefit us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I want to suggest that you and I need to remind ourselves of how Christmas benefits us, ultimately because it brings salvation. I mean, we know that, but we need to be reminded for that. Jesus didn't come to be born simply a king. He came to be born a savior. He came to save me when I couldn't save myself. If any of you have heard this very popular new song called Chainbreaker, it's a glorious song. If you haven't heard it, it's really, really cool. Just put, look it up, YouTube, Chainbreaker. If you need, if you have pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom and saving, he's a prison-breaking savior. If you've got chains, he's a chain-breaker. Christ came to save us. The Bible says this is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Christmas is about. And for some of you, are like, oh, that Jesus saves stuff. That kind of makes me squeamish. Get over it. If that makes you squeamish, you need to change the way you view Christ. Jesus is the Lord and Savior who offers us salvation. It benefits us by not only bringing us salvation, but the fruit of that salvation is that you and I experience some measure of joy and peace. I will bring you good news of great joy. Has the gospel never 
resonated in your soul and rumbled with a little bit of joy? Have you never felt, wow, with all of the troubles I have in this life, that at least there's Christmas, that at least I'm saved? So you and I need to, to, to sometimes turn our spiritual calculations to a, to a GPS that says, wait a minute, recalculating. Jesus died to save us. You can rejoice in that. Jesus had to, had to give the disciples attitudes adjustment along this very line. When he gave them power to cast out demons, they were pretty excited about that. They probably started trying it behind their back. In the name of Jesus, through the leg, in the name of Jesus. And they came back and they said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us. And he said, fellas, relax. Luke chapter 10. He says, don't rejoice that the demons are subjected to you. Rejoice because your name's written in heaven. And so I want to encourage you to think of the benefit of salvation. Not only that we're forgiven, but that now in this life, Christ wants to, to pour out the oil of gladness on you and to bring you some measure of joy. Now, I realize some of you, some of you are in, in hard times right now. You're in distress. You're hurting physically, spiritually, emotionally. But I want to challenge you to consider that rejoicing in Christ is a choice that we make. The Bible doesn't say, just rejoice if you feel really happy. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And even, even through your tears, can you mingle them with a rainbow of saying, God, I praise you for the joy of knowing that I'm forgiven, of knowing that Christ loves me, that Christ is coming again for me, that I belong to him. And then, and then it also says, peace, peace on earth. The benefits that, that we experience, a measure of peace. First of all, peace with God. Peace with God. Yesterday I was talking to some of the young men on our basketball team, and we were talking about how people just curse God, do things crazy, and they don't even have the slightest concern about it. And I say, you know why? Because they're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that one of the greatest reasons why there's rebellion and sin on this earth is there's no fear of God before their eyes. And people mistake God's patience for his absence and they figure, hey, I've been doing this all along and nothing happened. Well, that's a bad idea. You can only stretch a rubber band so far before it snaps. And one day people are going to awaken to this terrible, terrible realization that the wrath of God has been stored up and will be poured out on them and they will spend eternity in the lake of fire as the consequences of their sin. But as Christians, what a joy it is to know we don't have to be afraid of that. What a joy it is to say, Romans 5, 9, being justified by the blood of Jesus, I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When the devil reminds me of my sins, I remind him of my Savior. Jesus paid it all. There's no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. So it benefits us. It brings us salvation. It produces joy and peace. But it also benefits us because it's universal in its scope. It's going to go to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I wonder what the shepherds were thinking when he says, this will be for all the people. I wonder if the shepherds were like, you mean all the Jews? And I wonder if the angel said, did, did I stutter? Did I say the gospel's only for the Jews? It'll be for all the people. Men from the guttermost to the uttermost, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we're told, one day we'll surround the throne of Christ and we'll join together in this awesome opportunity to worship Christ. Doesn't that make you think about this world? As you think, for example, of what's going on in Syria right now. Austin and, and Marty came and shared with us of their visit to Syria. 
And in this war-torn civil war, there are still Christian men and women, boys and girls, families, fearing day by day for their very lives, but they're advancing the gospel, and people are streaming to Christ in the midst of all this tragedy. Doesn't it remind us to pray and worship the Lord Jesus and to ask God that our very purpose to advance the gospel will be forwarded in the power of the Spirit through the prayers of the saints? Doesn't it, doesn't it move your heart to say, Lord, I'm willing, send me. Lord, how can I give? How can I pray? What can I do to advance the gospel until this gospel's preached to the ends of the earth? But you know, there's another reason why the gospel and Christmas is glory to God in the highest. Yeah, it benefits man, but it also remedies sin. It remedies sin. That's what's wrong with this world. Everybody's looking for what's wrong with the world. Is it global warming? Is it because we're not educated? No, it's because of sin has ruined it has ruined this earth. The shalom has been lifted. Creation and humanity and angels are in rebellion against God. And until Jesus Christ comes back, there will be no peace on earth. But I am extremely thankful that Christ came to be my savior because he remedies sin in a number of ways. Number one, he remedies sin because he absorbs its penalty. I thank God that in six hours one Friday, Jesus paid it all. Because I sure don't want to pay for what I've done, do you? I've got shame and secrets just like you do. But there on that cross, the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. What a joy to know. Wow, Lord, my greatest problem is not anything but my own personal sin. And Christ took care of that when he came at Christmas. A Savior who died to take care of the penalty of my sin. But but he didn't just absorb its penalty, he removed its consequences. He's the Lamb of God who took away my sins, and so now I'm free. But you know what else thrills me? Because if you poke around and you think about sin long enough and hard enough, you're going to go back a little further in history than the Garden of Eden. You're going to have to go back before the Garden of Eden, and you're going to have to see this mighty being called Lucifer, who was perfect in all of his ways, who guarded the very throne of God until iniquity was found in him, till it welled up in spontaneous rebellion against God, and he began to incite this wicked offense against the almighty divine creator. I love these words from the book of 1 John. As John contemplates Christmas, listen to how he, he, he traces Christmas to a direct correlation to sin and Satan. It was Jesus' laser-focused attack on sin and Satan when he came to earth. Listen to these words. It says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. And you and I need to think about that. I'm weary of people going, oh, I'm not a sinner. I don't kill nobody. I haven't stolen and I don't use drugs. We're all lawless. We all break God's laws far more than we even think about. How about this one? You shall not covet. How are you doing with that one? Don't think that just because you haven't murdered somebody that we're not lawless. And the Bible says everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. But you know this, that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in Jesus, there is no sin. But then he says this. So mark this down. The one who practices sin 
is from the devil. He's sourced by the devil. When you pull back the curtain, it's not the Wizard of Oz, it's Satan, who's the source of sin on planet Earth. And John does something very, very remarkable. He puts something that began in eternity past in the present tense. He says, the devil sins from the beginning. An uninterrupted, vomitous process of practicing and promoting sin among God's creation. Listen to these beautiful words. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of Satan. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? I'm looking forward to when God grabs him by his neck. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he will cast him forever into the lake of fire and the smoke of his torment will ascend up day and night forever and ever. But let me caution you that while we're in this world, we need to be very careful how we speak to or about Satan. I tremble when I think of, of men on television preaching going, I'll punch the devil in the nose. We'll give him a beat down. We'll stomp him with our feet. The Bible says not even the archangel Michael dared bring a railing accusation against Satan. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. And I want to encourage you as you fight spiritual warfare, don't come in your own, you know, bursting out with threats to the devil. Come in the humble name of Jesus. Come submitting to God. Come to the throne of Jesus and say, the Lord rebuke you, evil one. I stand in, in, in the power and presence and promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible teaches us that we can look forward to that day when Satan will once for all be destroyed. In fact, Paul, Paul took the, the, the very kernel of this in, in Genesis chapter 3 when, when, when God was passing out curses for, his, for the rebellion of his creation and he looks at Satan and he says, from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush your head. And we know that that's Christ. But as the Holy Spirit was revealing to Paul the marvels of the gospel, in Romans 16, verse 20, he said this to the Christians. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you see the imagery there? As Jesus is about to destroy Satan once for all, he invites us, his little lambs, come on up here and put your foot on him with me. Hallelujah. That the gospel remedies sin by destroying its founder. But you know, there's a very practical ramification of this as well, and John talks about that. He says, Jesus came to take away sin. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says this, no one who is born of God practices sin. One of the benefits of the gospel story is that it breaks the power of sin in our lives. It releases us from our sins. And I fear that there are too many people in America, according to Barna Research, 48 people percent of people in America think they're born again. 48%. Now, I don't know where they live, but are half of your homies born again? Are half of your neighbors born again? Are half of your co-workers born again? The Bible says, mark this down. No one who has been born of God practices sin. And here's why. Because God's seed abides in him. He can't sin because he's been born of God. Now, let me, let me, let me explain what that means. It doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. But it means that Christians have been given a new heart. Christians have been given new desires. Christians have been made alive and were born again with a desire to do what's right. And though we don't always do what's right, though we sully our souls and muddy our minds, it bothers us. Christians aren't born again to enjoy their sins. 
They're born again to endure their sins. And so I want to be very careful. Some of you tender, precious lambs struggle with the guilt as you, as you feel yourself struggling in your thought life or, or things that you don't want to do. Why do I go back to them? That in itself is a sign of the Spirit of God's birth in your life. But those of you who sin boldly, who, who, who sleep around, who lie whenever it's convenient, who really don't care about what God says about anything, but you raise your born-again flag. I warn you. The Bible says one day, many will call me Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you. You practice wickedness. So many a time as, as I work with young people, they'll say to me, oh, yeah, when I was four years old, I asked Jesus in my heart, but I could care less about God. I lied, stole, cheated, did all these things, but then I rededicated my life, and I go, hey, take a look at your sinometer, and ask yourself when sin began to bother you. Because that's a good sign that, that God has changed your heart. And so I'm really thankful that at Christmas, there wrapped in that little manger was precious Jesus, who not only paid the penalty of my sin, but he broke its power. And he gave me a new heart. And I have to come to the Lord and be cleansed every day. I still struggle with sin. But, but if, if you're a Christian, you can praise God that you're no longer held in sin's dread sway. And that God wants you to believe that. He wants you to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You have power, and I have power to do all things through Christ. It's just such a great story. Glory to God in the highest. Centers on Christ, remedy sin. Another, another reason why it glorifies God is because it restores creation itself. You know, think about this, this planet for a moment. I mean, to me... People go, oh, well, evolution is science, but creation and Christianity, that's religion. I'm going, really? Really? So the best thing you got is that matter is somehow eternal, and I don't know, maybe there was a big explosion billions of years ago, and, and one of those rocks turned out in the explosion to be a perfect sphere. When was the last time you saw a blown-up rock in a perfect sphere? And then it just suspended itself in heaven, just kind of hangs there. Hmm, yeah, that happens often. And it just so happens that it landed just the right distance from another exploding star called the sun. And then it revolves on its axis and rotates around the sun just close enough to keep us from freezing, but not close enough to fry us. And you go, huh. But as I look at creation and how it glorifies God, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. His fingerprints are all over the place. And it's blasphemous for people to say, oh, I don't believe in God. I never seen him. Goldilocks didn't have to see the bears to know somebody's been eating my porridge. And the Bible says in Romans 1, from the creation of time, the invisible attributes of God, his power and nature are clearly seen so that people are without excuse. And I think the world's beautiful. It's our playground. I love to fish and swim and hike. And the Bible says God has created all things to be gratefully enjoyed by those who believe. If you haven't learned to love the outdoors, get outside. Put your, put your technology down and go and enjoy creation. The scriptures say the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. It's a giant playground for you to go out and play. But remember this, that in all of its beauty, it's broken. And I don't understand this completely, but Romans chapter 8 says this. It says creation, creation itself groans and suffers waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. 
So as those, those, those tectonic plates rub together under the earth, you think you have a sore back. Creation itself is groaning under a curse. And we see, we see floods and we see avalanches and we see earthquakes. We see those tectonic plates apologizing. I'm sorry, that's my fault. I'm going to let that go. I'm just going to keep going here. The Bible tells us that when Christ came, he came to reconcile all things, Colossians 1.20, all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. And so as we close in a few moments, we're going to sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. No more let sin and, and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. Remember when my daughter was little, any of you allergic to mosquitoes? See, my dad, my dad built steel pier down, helped build steel pier down in Brigantine. He was eaten by so many mosquitoes he didn't even notice anymore. And I must have got some of that in my blood because mosquitoes don't work. I mean, I don't like getting bit, but, but my daughter, every mosquito bite as a little girl would swell into a little red quarter that would last for days. And she said, Daddy, why did God make mosquitoes? But I look forward to the day when every mosquito will be sent to its eternal perdition. <laughs> and the lion will lay down with the lamb. And this creation will see, be set free and, and, and the hills will, will skip for joy and the trees will clap their hands and all of creation, the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, all of us will worship God on this glorious new heaven and new earth. That's cool. Peace on earth. Christ remedies the curse of creation. You know, another way that the gospel and Christmas glorifies God is because God in his compassion has certified it by signs. The next person that says to me, I never seen God, I don't believe in him. I love what W.A. Criswell said one time when, when the Russian astronauts came back from their tour of space and in their atheistic hard-heartedness, they said, we were up there and we didn't see God. And W.A. Criswell said this, he said, next time you're up there, open the window, you'll see him real quick. <laughs> Look at verse 12. This will be a sign for you. God in his mercy has chosen to draw people of himself to himself using signs. He doesn't have to. But when the Lord Jesus was on earth, he said, if you won't believe my words, believe on account of my signs. And God in his grace has continued throughout history to draw people to himself and to certify the gospel by signs. The Lord Jesus took the apostles and he said, you go out and I will work with you confirming my word with signs and miracles and power. And you read the book of Acts and you go, wow. Listen, I don't know who would make you believe that that stuff doesn't happen today, but you need to start reading about Muslims that are flocking to Christ and how many of them are having dreams of Christ from many different countries. Now, they're not getting saved through these dreams, but these dreams are provoking their mind. They're signs to them that are drawing them to inquire about Christianity. And when they meet Christians, they're remarkably open to the gospel. But in places where we're saturated with scripture, I want to warn you, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you're, you're making a bad gamble if you go, I need to see it to believe it. You see, there are people who have been exposed to scripture, like the... Like the the rich man who died and went to hell in Luke 16, and he says, Lord, send somebody back to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, hey, they got the scriptures. And, this, and the, the fellow in hell, he says, 
yeah, but they'll believe if you give them a sign. And Jesus says, if they won't believe the scriptures, why would they believe even if someone rose from the dead? But it is remarkable that God in his mercy chooses at times to use signs to magnify the gospel of Christ. But lastly this morning, one that I want us to kind of just think about in perhaps a new way is that the gospel brings glory to God because it magnifies his sovereign grace. It magnifies the fact that God doesn't deserve or need to save anybody, but in his own sovereign grace, he chooses to select and show favor and mercy on individuals. And it had nothing to do with us. It wasn't because he knew we were more clever that we would get it or that in our own free will, we just came to Jesus with a mild little assistance from God. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. We were rebels. Nobody seeks after God, but God caused the light of the gospel to shine in my heart. The Bible says you were children of wrath, even as the rest, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But God, because of his great love, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. He said, oh, pastor, you talk about that sovereign grace stuff. You read that into text. Let me tell you how I find that. The last phrase, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, some of you go, hey, 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 hang on. I learned this under King Jimmy. King Jimmy taught me that it says this, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Why doesn't it say goodwill toward man? Primarily because that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, peace on earth among men of pleasure, among men of favor, literally, among men of favor. That one word, pleasure, favor. And so people have struggled with that. Well, well wait a minute. Okay, so, so it doesn't say goodwill toward man. It says, peace on earth among men of favor. And so we can go two ways with this. And some people say this, peace on earth to men of goodwill. In other words, as God looks down, he sent Jesus, not for them bad people, but for men of goodwill. How does that resonate in your soul if you're a Christian? You go, yeah, yeah, that, I think that's what the Bible teaches, that there are some really good people down here, and God loved them, and he sent Jesus to those men of goodwill. He knows who they are. That's nonsense. There are no men of goodwill. From cover to cover, the Bible teaches that Men are evil. Our hearts are corrupt. Left to ourselves, we have the capacity to do abominable things. So God didn't send Jesus to men of goodwill. He sent men, he sent Jesus to save sinners. I'm glad for that, aren't you? Because if he asked who's a man of goodwill, I wouldn't raise my hand. But when it says men of favor, there have been lots of extra biblical documents that were found from around that time that use that same phrase. And in the context of that, that word of favor, it frequently meant this, men who have found favor, men who have received favor. So what I'm suggesting is that the angels say, glory to God in the highest, peace among men who have found God's favor. You say, well, I thought it was about me. I thought I chose Christ. Well, you did. But you chose him because he chose you. Because he had mercy on you. Because he delighted to save you 
in his sovereign grace, that you might be a trophy of his grace. And that's never designed to confuse you or confound you. So let me try to eliminate some of you are going, well, what if I'm not chosen? I want to be chosen. I want to be... Listen, if you want to be saved, you're welcome at the cross. You want to know if you're chosen? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about someone who doesn't want to find favor with God? What if they're chosen? Oh, dang, God's not strong enough to change their heart. Well, that's not fair, because what if he didn't choose my loved ones? The Bible never teaches that people go to hell because God didn't choose them. They go to hell because of their sin. And so we can preach and pray and plead and weep with unsaved people. We can train our kids and we can teach them that it's your decision to receive Christ. And if you don't do it, you will suffer the consequences. But those of us who are saved can magnify God. That even when I was dead in my sins, he caused the light of the gospel to shine in my heart. If that doesn't cause you to sing, I don't know what will. If that doesn't bring joy to your heart that God had mercy on my soul, that having been predestined by God and having been justified and called to himself, I have eternal glory and nothing can separate me from his love. That's the glory of God in the gospel of grace. And so this morning as we close, I want to I bring out some thoughts of application. And then we're going to sing as, as the, the, the worship team comes. We're going to sing joy to the world. But I want you to stop and think about some of the implications of this. If the gospel is ultimately to bring glory to God, glory to God in the highest, then what should be my response? Well, well think about some of the simplistic things like we should be worshiping him. We should be worshiping him. We should be singing and rejoicing and praising God, whether you feel like it or not. And as, as Christmas rolls around and and your kids like little puppies are, are ready to pounce on their bowl of food and you restrain them for a moment. And you say, listen, let's read the Christmas story. Let's remember what Christmas is all about. It's not about sugar plums dancing in, his, in our heads. It's not about reindeer skipping across our roofs. It's about God sent his son Jesus. And we rejoice and we worship him and we bring to him the gifts of our, ourselves, and we give ourselves to Christ. And believe me, they watch us, right? They watch us in our stress. They watch us in our, in our confusion. They watch us on Christmas Eve with our short tempers because the packages aren't wrapped yet. Because <laughs> someone got the last Tickle Me Elmo. And then we wonder why it's not catching on when we teach them to rejoice. And so I thank God that I have a Savior who was born for me. Not because, oh, Pastor Tom. How about Sinner Tom, saved by the grace of God? So I want to invite you to worship, to, to, to teach your children, to passionately remind them of these glorious truths. And then I want to encourage you to consider this idea of making peace. God sent Jesus to bring peace. If you haven't found peace with God... What are you waiting for? He's not mad at you. He said, I sent my son to bring you peace. And the Bible says when you come to Christ, you have peace with God. So I'm going to suggest that if you're not at peace with God, it's either because you didn't know how to before, but now you do. You repent of your sins. You tell God, sorry that I've sinned against you. And you believe that Christ died and paid it all. You throw away 
your thoughts of purgatory and penance and, and you cling to the cross of Jesus. And you say, Lord, I believe and I want Jesus to be my savior. And then I say, well, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you make your, well, I'll do it some other time. Wow, that's a bad gamble. Come to Christ and ask him to forgive you today. And God will give you peace. He will forgive you of your sins. He'll, he'll give you a new heart. You don't need to reform yourself. Just repent and believe the gospel. Receive God's gift. But some of you need to make peace in other ways. Maybe you are a Christian. You're away from God. It's time to get home and get right. And some of you need to make peace on the horizontal level. I'm so mad at my brother. I'll never speak to mother again. I can't stand my neighbor. The Bible says as much as lies in us, let us live peaceably with all men. Could I invite you that are filled with anger? And I have no agenda here. I'm not, God might be speaking to you, but I'm not pointing people out. But, but if you have anger and, and, and rage toward anyone this morning, can you let it go and give it to Christ? It's really not helping. The Bible says, don't let a root of bitterness rise up within you. To choose to forgive someone doesn't mean God forgives them. They still have to answer to God. The Bible says we forgive them because God has forgiven us. And by all means, at Christmas, if you have somebody that you're hating on or, or, or separated from, do what you can. Even if it's not your fault, if there's something you can do to extend that olive branch of peace and say, listen, man, Jesus, it's all about peace. Jesus, Maybe it's your spouse. You two have been fighting like cats and dogs. And you're like, this is stupid. We've got to try a better way. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a, a long-lost Uncle Barry that <coughs> can't stand him. Whoever it is this morning, let's thank God that Christ came to bring peace. Would you pray with me? And then Benjamin's going to lead us. Father, thank you for the great Christmas story. And may we resound and sing with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Thank you that you astounded the angels. You centered us on Christ. You benefited us. You remedied sin. You restored creation. And you magnified your sovereign grace. We love you, Lord. And we pray that you will cause us to go out this week advancing the gospel, praying and loving and waiting for the Lord Jesus to come again. May we all invite someone to come to Christmas Eve. May we all reach out and, and share the good news with our children and others. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.